Once upon a time, New York City's garment district employed hundreds of thousands of workers and produced most of the clothing made in the United States. But thanks to outsourcing and technological advances, the district is now just a shadow of what it once was. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our guest this morning has fond memories of the garment district's heyday. Leonard Bernstein's family founded a children's wear business in 1928. He took over the company in 1953. Bernstein's children now run the business, but the Brooklyn native says he can still hear the hum of sewing machines in his head. Bernstein is now a published author. He's written six books, including a collection of short stories in which he draws a lot from his experiences in the garment district. The collection is called Death by Pastrami. Leonard Bernstein, thank you so much for coming in. Good morning. So, first of all, how frequently has your name been confused with that of the composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein? Bernstein appeared on the scene when I was 12 years old. So, ever since then, 50 years ago or 60 years ago, that has been a problem. And everybody thinks it's a wonderful problem, but let me tell you, it is not a wonderful problem. In what way? Well, people will say to you, oh, Leonard Bernstein, you call up a restaurant and you make a reservation and, uh, you know, they, they give you the best seat in the house. Uh-huh. That is true. But you have to remember that when you appear and you are not <laughs> who they are expecting, uh, this is a very embarrassing situation. Yeah, so it's I mean, after all, the chef comes out from the kitchen to greet you. The owner drives down from Westchester County into Midtown Manhattan to greet Leonard Bernstein, and you show up. You don't ever want to do this. Believe me. I've done it. I was I've going made to say, that it mistake. It sounds like it's happened perhaps more than once. Well, huh? no, it only happened once. Only once. Which, once you make that mistake, you, you never don't make, make it, it again. again. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, many of your short stories are set in New York's Garment District. Yes. You are no stranger to the Garment District. I've been working there for 60 years. What's your background? How did you get there? I graduated the University of Michigan uh, in 52 or something like that. I was an English major. My family had a garment center company, which I had no intention of going into. I mean, I was an English major, right? Not, not a business major. Uh, and my father got critically ill and died after I was three or four months out of Michigan. And the family said, look, you've got to go into the company. I said, what do I know about this? I'm an English major. I write, you know, I do things like that. They said, no, you've got to go into the company. You've got to save the company. That's how I got into it. Well, now I see the connection between the garment industry and this book you're writing. Yes, yes. yes. So I went into it. Uh, be, and, and I went into it saying to myself, well, okay, you'll go into it for six months or a year, and then, you know, you'll Decades teach English. By. Or you'll, <laughs> or you're right. You'll do something like what you went to school for. Yeah. And I was there for a year, and I remember this very clearly. After the first year, I said to myself, my God, I like this. I'm what having you, a good time in What business. did you like about it? Well, it's exciting. It's every day is different. There's a tremendous energy in business and in the garment center. 
one meets a lot of people, one earns a respectable amount of money if you know what you're doing, which after a year I sort of knew what I was doing. And so I was having a terrific time. Now, what did your family manufacture specifically? Sleepwear and, and, and underwear. At that time, we're going back. The company was started in 1928. What was it called? A long time ago. What's the name? The name of the company is Candlesticks, related to our sleepwear operation. Still in business today? Yes. And you are still running I the company? I am not. Okay. But I have two children who are. So it's still in the family. A family yes, tradition Yes, still continues. in the family. How much has the garment district changed since you first began working there in the early 1950s? Well, the garment industry, at least in terms of America, has disappeared. It is no longer possible to manufacture clothing in America. Why is that? Because in China, the wage level is 75 cents an hour, maybe a dollar an hour. In America, wherever you are, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, it is $12 an hour, which incidentally is not such a terrific wage. I'm not making a case for it, but you can understand that on one hand, you have a level of $1, and the other hand, you have a level of $12, and so you can't be competitive with Asia. So all of the manufacturing of apparel has moved out to Asia because you simply cannot compete on the product. You're selling a pair of pajamas for $10, you're selling it for $7. But yet there are still some small-time designers in the garment district yes. trying to make it. There are exceptions, exactly as you said. There are exceptions. The boutique industries, the small-time designers, the high-fashion stuff where price is not an issue, maybe even bridal gowns, for example, where people don't think about price. I come from the world of $10 pajamas, so, you know, we manufacture a million pair of pajamas uh, in America every year. If you want to sell to the big department stores, you need to produce overseas is what you're saying. Yes, you do. A lot of people argue, Leonard, that factories overseas abuse workers. They enslave children. Do you know that to be true? Is that a solid argument? It's a argument? very good question. And you're absolutely right. It has been talked about for, oh, my God, last forever since we started moving the manufacturing of apparel to China. Um, I'm sure there are abuses, but I think it is exaggerated. So your pajamas are being made in China exactly. right now. How frequently does your family go out there and visit the factories? Three times a year. Mm -hmm. And you monitor for things like that, abuses? Yes, oh, of course. And, uh, I mean, the industry monitors for abuses. What do you miss most about the garment district of yesterday, the garment district in Manhattan? It was, of course, an old world. It was the business world where we worked right in the center of things. By that, I mean the sewing machines were three steps away 
as far away as I am from you. The cutting tables, the shipping department, it was all there. Everybody was working in one place, and you, if you were the owner, as I was the owner of the company, I mean, if you're there, you're you're right in the middle of everything that is happening. It's exciting. And China, the manufacturing of China in China, is not exciting in the same way because viscerally, you're not there. You're on the computer. You place your order. They they they, they manufacture the goods. They ship it overseas. But you're not in the center of things. So at you all. appreciated the hum of that factory. Absolutely. It was exciting to come in every day. Every day there was some disaster about to happen, and uh, this is what we had to deal with. The short stories in your book are a work of fiction, but how much of your writing is based on real-life experiences in the Garment District? Well, you're right. The stories, of course, are short stories, so they are fiction. But nothing in that book, no story in that book was fantasy in the sense that it could not have happened. Everything that I write about could have happened, and I know it because I was there. You lived it. Your stories introduce us to a large cast of characters in the garment district, from cutters to company executives. Yes. In the story titled At Home, I Would Have Been a Princess. Yes. You focus on a sewing machine operator. Yes. What can you tell me about the women who worked the sewing machines in the garment district during your day? Well, of course, the sewing machines and the cutting table were right there, right right on top of us. And... um, this was the center of the operation. The sewing machines and the sewing machine operators were what made the business run. We hired them. Uh, we, we, we trained them. We put them on machines that would be consistent with who they were, which incidentally is not a given. What does that mean, consistent well, uh, okay, with who they were? Okay, let me explain that. I mean, you don't hire a sewing machine operator without some understanding of the machine you're going to put her on. Because if she is old, as let us say when I came in, the Italian and Jewish operators were the old operators, old and slow and a little bit decrepit, Naturally, you had to put them on a machine that was a little less demanding, a little slower. Look, it's no different than baseball, right? If you're the manager of a baseball team and you got a guy coming into your team that's going to bat 350 and hit 40 home runs, but he can't field to save his life, where do you put him? You don't put him in center field, he'll drop every ball that's hit to him. So you, you put him on first base, right? That's where all the big, clumsy guys who hit 40 home runs end up. So in the garment industry, you have the same thing. You have to match the operator to the sewing machine. If she's young, if she's vigorous, you put her on a fast machine. If she's older and going to retire in three years, you put her on a slow machine. Did you ever run into any age discrimination complaints? No, I never did. You write in the book that the objective of the sewing machine operator was to work as slowly as possible so as to make the operation seem more difficult. Why? Why is that? 
Good question. Sewing machine operators, sadly, worked on piecework. Now, piecework means, as you probably understand, that they are paid for the amount of garments that they produce every day. An archaic notion, but nevertheless, piecework was central to the way garments were manufactured. So, if an operator, um, a sewing machine operator, was going to produce 100 garments a day on average, you paid her accordingly. You paid her a price that was consistent with 100 garments. So, what she would like to do is make it seem like you should pay her for fewer garments. That way she would work less hard for the same amount of money. So the operator slowed down a little bit. Now, is that okay No. with the employer? No. No, it's not okay. How do you handle that? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, you... The workplace was a battleground between the factory manager and the sewing machine operator. They had one interest. The uh, factory manager had another interest. And between these two interests, they sort of hammered out a workable deal. Let's put it that way. And um, it worked, but... There were games like I suppose in any industry uh, there are there are there are games that are played. It was okay. I mean, it wasn't. There was no abuse one way or the other. In this story about the sewing machine operator, you also say the first rule in a garment factory is no fooling around with the operators. Now, was that a true rule? Absolutely, absolutely. In the first week that I appeared. In the apparel industry, the factory manager took me aside and he said, look, here's the first rule. No fooling around with the sewing machine operators. Now, he's right because this is a business of sewing machine operators, many of them young, many of them attractive. I don't know. Maybe many of them available. So... The rule is set forth on day one, and that was made absolutely clear to me. Was the temptation there for you as a young man? Well, look, there are operators who are attractive, and you are working right in among them. So I would say, I wouldn't say the temptation, but I would certainly refer to an attraction. I mean, it would be ridiculous not to be aware that a particular sewing machine operator was attractive. Your short story references the sexual tension between a factory owner and a sewing machine operator. Yes. The story is about a particular woman who is exceptionally attractive, and her manager, who knows that he can't get involved, but is nevertheless drawn to her attractiveness. That plays out in the relationship between the two of them. I hope it works successfully. It is a story that I particularly like a lot. Why? Why do you like that story in particular? 
because I think it ha- it develops characters and it develops a situation that is beyond simply telling the story of what happened. The chemistry, the magnetism between the two people, the young owner or the young manager and this particularly attractive woman and uh, how they deal with this is, I think, interesting. And you as know, you stated earlier, this could have been a real-life scenario in the garment absolutely. industry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, the part of the story where the factory manager, not, not the young man who is connected to the um, operator, where the factory manager is unfair to this lady in setting prices. In other words, instead of paying her $0.10 cents for what she does per garment, he's paying her $0.08, cents and her reaction to this uh, is, is an important part of the story. So it's a story for me that has uh, layers of development and interesting connections as opposed to a tale. Remember that a a short story has to be more than the sum of its words. It has to get beyond. It has to have meaning. It, It has to be allegorical even, if you wish. But it has to go beyond telling the tale. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. Our guest this morning is a veteran of New York City's Garment District. Leonard Bernstein's family founded a children's wear business in 1928. He ran the company for many years, starting in 1953. Bernstein's kids are now at the helm, but he fondly remembers the days when he was in charge. Bernstein is now a published author. Many of the short stories in his collection, titled Death by Pastrami, give us a glimpse into the garment district during its heyday. One of the more intriguing stories in the book, at least for me, is the man who wanted to buy a heart. The first line sucked me right in. The first line, when Reuben wanted to buy a heart, he went downtown to see Markowitz, who dealt in all commodities. Right. Markowitz could get the heart if anyone could. Right. Well, you know, in in, in the early part of the century, downtown in New York, there were guys like Markowitz, uh, and there were guys like Reuben, and there were guys who were procurers of whatever it is you needed. This is very, very old world. But I will tell you, I agree with you, I think it's one of the best stories. And the reason it is one of the best stories is because it is beyond the story. I mean, in fact, nobody ever sold his heart. Nobody ever asked anybody else, would you sell your heart? I mean, it is all allegorical. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it is a tale of greed and a tale of honor. That's what the story is about. Not really about will you sell your heart. So those are the things that make short stories good and important. That theme of greed and honor also plays out in another short story in this book, and that's the debt. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Story of greed and honor, exactly. And a good, in my view... 
uh, one of one of the good stories. Another one of my favorites in the book is Navy Blue Forever, about yep. an engineer who chooses the suit he will wear every day yep. for the rest of his life. Yep. What were you thinking when you wrote that story? Well, I was, I was thinking that it was an interesting idea that we might wear the same thing. People might wear the same thing for all of their life. I don't know, that floated into my otherwise inactive mind. And I said, well, I'm going to write a story about this. I'm going to make up a guy who decides actually in his life to do this. He's going to wear a navy blue suit forever, which is the title, navy blue forever. Mm -hmm. And so this guy does and enters into the world of wearing one outfit for his entire life. I loved the concept of it. Now, initially, his colleagues are intrigued by the idea. Right. And then they are totally bothered by the idea later on. They're tired of seeing him in that suit. Exactly right. It becomes tiresome. The morality of it, the the scheme, the idea, enough already, enough talking about this guy at the water coolers, right? Yeah. And finally, of course, in the last line or two, what happens to the guy, you, you might remember, is that he becomes terribly lonely, mm-hmm. which I thought was a reasonable, believable, meaningful ending. You know, we never know how short stories end. You start writing them without knowing where you're going. And sort of in the middle of the story, the story takes off on its own, and it leads the writer instead of the writer the story. So I never knew where this guy in his navy blue suit was going to end up. And where he ended up was alone and lonely in spite of his glorious idea. The title of the book is Death by Pastrami. It's also the title of one of the stories in the book. What's the moral of that story? Death by Pastrami is about a funeral home and a funeral salesman at that home who's looking for customers. And he finds out, as you probably recall, he finds out that, remember this is fiction, (laughs) that people who are eating pastrami sandwiches at the delicatessen are dying within the next five minutes. So he hangs out at the delicatessens and figures that, you know, they're going to need a funeral home and he'll be there to hand them his card. The story is a wild, wild fantasy. Um, I don't think it has a moral distinction. It's just a bizarre idea. Now, is the writing something you took up much later in your career in the garment industry, or were you writing all along? No. I, I started writing, that is to say, for publication. Mm-hmm. Um, I always was able to write fairly well. I was always the guy who, when someone was having a uh, 10th anniversary or something, they said, oh, Leonard, come on, you can write a poem for this and be okay. So, you know, I was always halfway competent. But in the mid, when I was in my mid-30s, I had been in business now for at least 10 years, 
I wrote one or two things rather casually, and they seem to me to be not too terrible. And so I sent them out to literary journals or newspapers, whatever, published. This would have been in the days when I started writing poetry. And lo and behold, they got accepted. Well, I never forget anything like this could ever happen to me. But they got accepted, so I said, well, I'll write a few more stories. And that's how the road started. Another story in this collection of short stories is a story about the ragman. Yes. What is a ragman? A ragman is very much a true part of any garment factory because every garment factory has remnants and shavings and um, blocks of fabric that are little triangles and little uh, rectangles that are waste. And there's a lot of waste of that. Can't be helped. And so you pile up cartons of waste and you don't throw it out because it is sold for newspaper. Newspapers are made out of rags. So it is the rags in the garment factory are sold to newspapers. And the way it happens is a guy comes and picks up the rags and brings them to whoever he brings them. I never know who, but uh, that's the way it works. So there is a ragman. The guy is called the ragman. Is that something that still exists today? No, no, not quite. Not quite today, but going back 20 or 30 years when garments were manufactured in the ninth floor lofts of New York City, where I started out, yes, every week the ragman came with his burlap bags and he took all of our rags and he paid us like 10 cents a pound, I forget how much, Mm -hmm. and we sold him the rags. He brought them to the New York Times, I guess, or whoever did this thing, and it ended up as newspaper. Hmm. Did not know that. See that? That's what happened. <laughs> that story is interesting because I remember that the ragman would pay you five cents a pound for white rags, but only two cents for pink. Hmm. Why is that? You don't want pink newspapers. Exactly. <laughs> They have to be bleached out. Yeah, that's great. That's a great story. Do you think it's important to write about the garment industry in the way that you are in these short stories? Well, I think it is very important because, curiously, no one ever seems to have done it. Kind of sad. That said, have you ever thought about writing nonfiction about the garment industry well, in history? Well, in fact, yes, I, uh, I have thought about that, and in fact, I did. The second book I wrote was a nonfiction book about the industry. I mean, it wasn't a history. It wasn't an instructive book. It was kind of, one would hope, uh, entertaining, a little bit on the funny side. But yes, the second book I wrote after the first book, which was a poetry book, was about the garment industry. So this is something that was, it was... Beautiful. New York grew up, just as China is now growing up. New York grew up 
on the back of the garment industry. These dirty ninth floor lofts with the dripping oil and the shavings and the ragmen and the, uh, the, the freight elevators who were operators who were maybe stealing a box of garment and who cared. New York grew up on this. That's how it got to be. Now, of course, New York is something else. New York is one of the elegant, forward cities of the world. But it wasn't then. It wasn't when I came into it. And I was proud to be there. The book is Death by Pastrami. Leonard Bernstein, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Death by Pastrami is a collection of short stories drawn from Leonard Bernstein's experiences working in New York's garment district during its heyday in the 1950s and 60s. The book is out now from UNO Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can listen to past editions of the show at any time at wfuv.org slash cityscape. We also invite you to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.